Hey everyone. First off, we at The Feminist Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, I am your Familiar Strange today, Simon Theobald, together with... Julia Brown. Ian Pollock. And Jodie Lee Trimbath. Hello to you all. Hello. Hello. Hi, Simon. So... Julia, what are you thinking about this week? So I've been thinking about zombie nouns and how social scientists might communicate their ideas more simply in plain English. Now, by zombie nouns, I mean creating new words via nominalization, such as sociality, relationality, neoliberalization, politicization, those big mouthful words that we get what the meaning of them might be, but they're a little bit perhaps distracting to read at first. And I think that anthropologists in particular tend to use them to describe things that are in the grey zone of knowledge. Perhaps any discipline that draws on postmodern theory is prone to this because we deconstruct and reconstruct ideas and it's all pretty abstract. But as Alex de Giorgio has pointed out on a previous TFS blog on academic jargon, using non-simple language can exclude people and It also gets abused by students who may not be using the words as intended. And I've been spending a lot of my time at the moment teaching students how to use plain English, but I realise the inherent contradiction in this is that I'm not very good at using it myself. So my question for you guys is, can we just use plain English in anthropology? And what does it signal to other people outside of the discipline if we can't? Well, I'm, I'm going to shock everybody by saying the opposite of what you probably think I'm going to say, which is no, I don't think that we can. I would have always said, actually, before I started my PhD, that it was necessary for academics to use less jargon, particularly in academic papers. But uh, my supervisor, who has a very popular blog called The Thesis Whisperer, wrote a blog post about how jargon, particularly academic jargon, allows us to build community and provides you with a language to, like a shorthand to be able to communicate with the people within your own discipline quickly. Where jargon goes wrong is actually when you try and use it with people who aren't required to use it and aren't required to know it, and that's when it becomes exclusionary. And so I think, you know, something like a public anthropology project like TFS is a good example of that. We don't need to use that kind of jargonistic language here. See, I'm not convinced that we're not using zombie nouns, though, when we are communicating via the familiar strange. Like, Mm. I think a lot of our blogs and podcast discussions use these words all the time. Yeah, I think you're right. I just think we don't, that we shouldn't. Okay, so how how can we not, though? Well, we are trying to walk a fine line here at The Familiar Strange and bridge two audiences, if it's at all possible. Nobody's proven that this is possible. This is the thing, to bridge a general audience with an academic one. But I think we've all felt from the beginning that as important as it is to reach that general audience and expand anthropology beyond, beyond the academy, beyond the ivory tower, 
We don't want to do so at the expense of the respect of the academy and of the people who are in this department with us, for instance. And we don't want to sort of run away from ourselves because who are we? We're a bunch of anthro geeks. I thought until this morning that I wrote quite plain, straightforward English, but apparently I don't. We read one of Simon's chapters for the writing group today. Uh, And for the most part, you do write in very plain English, but there were one or two kind of turns of phrase where you talked about like dialectical dialogic loops. I don't even remember what they were, but there were some like there were some choice nuggets of kind of <laughs> turgid prose. Yeah, it was a little dense. A little uh, dense. So I, I have always been of the belief that you should write you should try and write as simply as possible. There is definitely a fine line between um sounding like a wanker. I wasn't gonna say that. Weren't you? I, I was, was gonna say like you fell out of a dictionary. Huh. Um and keeping it too simple, right? But I definitely think, as much as I like Bourdieu, I do think that some of his sentences were a little bit um, purple. <laughs> Completely <laughs> dishwasher. Unreadable. So I would invite listeners out there, if we are using terms and you don't know what they mean, you should let us know because sometimes we do it on purpose to confuse you, but sometimes we <laughs> totally don't. I never do that. Ian, thank you for your nice wrap up. What are you thinking about this week? Uh, I've been thinking about material objects and how sometimes they can really seem to crystallize something about your field research or about the people that you're studying with. So while I was doing my field research, one of the things that I was most interested in finding and seeing was this very kind of high-level textile. Like It's a woman's sarong, but it's only worn by uh, people of very kind of high social standing. And they're really rare these days. Most of them have been sold to collectors. Uh, It took me a whole year of trying to see one. And then when I finally did get a chance and I was sitting with the family that owned it and they, they started telling me all of these stories about this textile and how it had been in their family for hundreds of years and it was deeply significant and, and sort of uh, a signifier of their social standing in this community. But sitting next to me was my landlord who came from a different family. And after we left that house, he told me that everything that they had just said was a lie and he was really offended by it and that in fact the textile had once belonged to his family but had been stolen by this other family that thought of themselves as aristocrats, whereas his own family was commoners. And so they sort of felt like they had the standing to to seize this textile from the commoner family and keep it. And this had sort of been quietly rankling ever since. I realized that in this object and the story of this object and the movements of this object, it told a whole story about social class and how it was changing in recent decades. And uh, I just wondered if you guys also encountered in your fieldwork particular objects whether they're man-made objects or other objects that really sort of crystallized something important about your research and that let you sort of think around. So I found that in my research in clozapine clinics, clozapine is the drug that I was studying that treats chronic schizophrenia, the thing that became a register of meaning for all of my participants was blood. And this was a very everyday thing in the sense that it didn't immediately stand out to me as the obvious thing that was bringing everyone together, even though people were coming into these clinics to get blood tests, I probably overlooked it at first because I was more interested in like the direct social relations that were happening. But through long-term observation and talking to people about what the blood work itself meant, I realised that it became a metaphor for much more. Yeah, that's cool. That's not the kind of answer I was expecting. It's totally different sort of material. What about you, Jodie? Well, so I did my fieldwork at an international branch campus of a Western university that's based in Vietnam. And a key argument of my thesis is that the way that the 
campus presents itself to the outside world uh, has become even more important, I guess, than the sort of stuff that goes on inside the university, the education and the research. And so maybe one way that that could be summed up is the way that the classrooms were quite exquisite, some of them. They were really modern, they were shiny, everything was shiny and really prestigious looking, I guess, in a lot of cases. But if you needed to plug something into the wall, the power plugs were not particularly well designed. And so in some classrooms, you actually had to stand there and hold the plug at the socket in order to get it to not fall out. And I guess that might be a kind of metaphor, I guess, for that way that everything can look beautiful, but the substance of, of making things actually work could be missing. It's very much about story making and, and using as a metaphor in yeah. your writing, right? Yeah, I haven't actually written about the power plugs oh. at this point. <laughs> Funnily enough, I did just, I will now, but, um, but yeah, I hadn't actually thought to put that in, but I think it is a good metaphor. I don't really know if it's a metaphor for my like thesis, but one of the things that was kind of omnipresent and I, I found if someone asked me like, what object reminds you of Iran? It would be the plastic bag. The plastic bag? The plastic bag. Yeah. Because it's just blowing in the wind, a thousand plastic bags people use. I think in some ways it, it kind of says something about what Iran has this kind of throwaway, really very throwaway society at the moment. People like to reuse things as little as possible. So even furniture sets get thrown out every year. You get a new set of furniture every year because it's not good to have an old set of furniture. Every year? Every every year. They throw out all the furniture? If you can afford to, yeah. If you can't, usually you try and have it re-upholstered so it looks like it's new. So for me, I think that said a lot about... How different societies put different priorities on different things at the same time. And it sounds like those bags became, the way you describe it, they're blowing in the wind. It's like they literally became part I of the atmosphere. I was just thinking of American Beauty. I was too. That's what I was about <laughs> to bring up as well. Wasn't, it wasn't Is like it that. No, it was like bags caught in trees, bags on the side of the road, bags like you drive into a city, the closer you get, the more bags there were by the side of the road, that kind of thing. Great. Well, in the interests of time, Jody, what have you been thinking about this week? Uh, yeah, to bring the mood down. Um, so I... Time is sad, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's true too. But uh, I want to talk about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And I guess the inclination that I have is to view that entire affair through uh, the lens of misogyny and drawing again on Kate Mann's definition of misogyny, which is that it's the, the law enforcement branch of the patriarchy, or the way that women... And to some extent, men who don't conform are punished or shaped by patriarchal norms, by the people who believe in upholding the patriarchy. So I think that's a fairly natural way to to view that whole experience. But I'm wondering if we could look at it through a different lens, perhaps of biopolitics, which is, and I'm, I'm going to read you out a definition because I think it might offer us a new way to kind of explore this topic potentially. It's a zombie noun. Biopolitics, do you think so? Biopoliticization. Now that would be a zombie noun. Um, okay, so this is this is from the um, Anthro Biopolitics blog. 
In The Birth of Biopolitics, Foucault begins to theorise liberalism as a practice and as a critique of government, the rise of which, he argues, is inseparable from the rise of biopolitical technologies of governance, which have extended political control and power over all major processes of life itself through a transferal of sovereign power into biopower, that's in quotes, that is, technologies and techniques which govern human, social and biological processes. So basically the idea that the state governs our bodies and what we can and can't do with our bodies and has particular technologies that it uses to govern our bodies. It's actually a lot more complex than that, I, I believe, and I don't use this theory, but I wonder if we looked at the way that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was treated in those hearings and in the media during and afterwards and before for that matter. And if we can explore that through the ways that women's bodies in particular are um, governed, particularly during this presidency and the things that women are allowed to say about their own bodies, the things that men are allowed to say about women's bodies and what isn't appropriate to say in public fora about women's bodies. Thoughts? Well, President Trump, more than anybody else in public life that I've ever heard about, uses appearances, physical appearances, to judge who's appropriate for certain roles. So for instance, Mike Pence, he refers to Mike Pence as straight from central casting. Ages ago when he was uh, testifying, I think it was testifying before Congress about uh, Indian casinos and how he was trying to get tax breaks for his own casinos. And part of the reason he felt like he deserved tax breaks that Native Americans were getting was that he looked at the Native Americans who ran those casinos and said, they don't look like Indians to me. Oy. So part of Trump's reasoning has always been, as he tries to fill the, fill the roles around him, that those people display the correct biomarkers being, for the most part, their race and their gender. And this also came into play recently with Senator Elizabeth Warren, how Trump... Right, he looks at her and says, you don't look like an Indian to me. There's whole well-articulated debates already, if you look at what Kim Talbert has been writing, around the claims that Elizabeth Warren makes on indigeneity and Native American heritage or blood or DNA. There is a whole politicization of that issue. (laughs) (laughs) You're having way too much fun with this. Yeah, but in a very real sense, the state is now being directed by people who are using physical, biological markers as a determinant of who deserves to have power and position and who doesn't. So, I mean, I guess the question that I that I have for you is, did you guys pick up on the sense that the Republican senators, particularly the men in the room in that hearing, just seemed really outraged that she seemed to have feel that she had the right to talk about the things that had happened to her body in a professional context. Absolutely. Mm. And also, I mean, you say outrage, but the display and sort of the deployment of emotion was highly gendered as well. Uh, the idea that, you know, because Kavanaugh went out and sort of in his rebuttal testimony, I suppose, but screamed and shouted and cried. And it was widely observed in the media that if uh, Dr. Ford had behaved in that way, that she would have it would have rendered her rendered her non credible. Yeah, and I guess like I was reading an article the other day about Dr. Blasey Ford's voice and how it was high pitched and too feminine, and it made her sound girlish and infantile. Like, but the opposite is if she had displayed more stronger emotion, she might have been called shrill for exactly the same reason. Right. What were you reading? Republican Weekly or something? No, no, it was a critique of. 
the media that has criticised her for her voice. But, yeah, I mean, I thought that was really interesting. Like, every aspect of her testimony has been judged and governed. Judged and governed by perceptions of her, like, physical characteristics, like her voice. Right. On the other hand, people also said stuff about, like, the real precision of her language and the scientific ways that she referred to uh, kind of the ways that memories are... Because she's a... She's a clinical psychologist, I think. Yeah. Uh, and so she had a very precise and scientific language for talking about memory formation. So that kind of goes against what I just said because that was also something people judged her on. People are confused about what women should be doing. She can't do right. I don't think we're going to find an answer to <laughs> No, we're probably not going right, to right solve um, the American biopolitics problem today. Uh, so if you don't mind, we might move on to me. With a similarly intractable problem, excellent, which is the presumed murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was, for I'm sure all of you are aware, was the oh, journalist with the um, Wall Street, Washington, Washington Post. Sorry, Washington Post, and he entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and has not been seen from since. And the kind of general consensus is that he was brutally murdered by the Saudi government, or at least agents operating on behalf of the Saudi government. And what it made me think about was the fact that we as anthropologists tread this fine line between not judging our informants and yet at the same time wanting to adhere to, I think, a particular kind of universal set of values. And this issue really riled me up, but I normally think of myself as someone who's very opposed to you know, imposing Western values on our informants and assuming that the standards that I judge myself can be used to judge other people. But I guess I'm wondering, what do you guys think? You know, Nancy Shepard Hughes has put forward this argument that anthropologists should be the foot soldiers of a moral vision of the world. Do you guys agree with that? Or do you think that we should, you know, instances where we massively disagree with what our informants do, do you think we should step back and say, well, it's just your culture? That's a tough one. You know, having done some work in the development field, it's a question that we tangle with all the time because, you know, you work sometimes in societies that have values that are drastically different to the ones that I bring to it. So, for instance, things like gender equality, probably no societies are gender equal, but that is a value that I hold, even if I'm an imperfect practitioner of it. Being in development, you're also sort of a, a missionary of capitalism most of the time. And you might encounter a lot of, you know, local cultural practices that are sort of opposed to those kinds of accumulation that economic development would encourage. For instance, people throwing large weddings or ceremonies where they spend all their, borrow everything and they spend it all and then they're uh, left with nothing but debt. And recognizing that these practices do not in fact leave people with nothing but debt, but actually leave them densely embedded in social webs that are incredibly meaningful and valuable to them. Once you start to realize that, you can step back from many things that you presumed were values that you needed to missionized to the rest of the world. Uh, so it is difficult to draw those lines. And the more you get to know the people that you are working with, uh, often you end up retreating from some of those values. Kim Fortune, who I interviewed for our previous podcast, she's a anthropologist that also worked in advocacy while she was doing fieldwork in Bhopal in India. And we were talking about in the interview how anthropologists can do things while they're doing field work, not just afterwards. But I guess what I'm thinking about here is how we don't always know what is the right thing to do until afterwards. Like at what point, if we were to take a more kind of activist stance, should we do so? And I guess it depends on the circumstances too. For me, I don't. I'm going to piss people off with this one, but I don't actually believe in right and wrong. 
not in a universal sense. I, I believe that there are some things that are wrong, but I don't believe that just because I believe them that makes it universally true. And so I find it quite difficult to have a conversation like this because to me, I don't think that there is a platform on which I could stand and say that the murder of uh, this, if it is a murder, then this murder of this Saudi journalist is universally wrong. But that doesn't mean that I personally don't hate it and doesn't make me angry. But being angry about something isn't a cause for action necessarily. That's how I would normally say I feel right. Like I'm like, yeah, I might personally feel this is wrong, but I don't necessarily feel that I can make a claim to universality about it. But it then makes doing anything about things really difficult, right? But is it your place to do anything? And I think it's also a mistake to assume that even if all anthropologists were to enter into a moral crusade, that they'd all be crusading in the same direction. Yeah. In terms of our attitudes to power, in terms of our attitudes to race, in terms of our attitudes to hierarchy, we're as diverse as any human population. It's in a way not different from just inviting any population to activism. There's going to be a heterogeneity. It's not like all anthropologists will stand up for the downtrodden. That is what Nancy Shepard Hughes, I think, believes that we will do. We will, we will and should do. I mean, I think there is a political bias in who chooses to be an anthropologist and that we tend to believe in the power of structure as opposed to just the power of agency, right? That there are social structures that affect our lives, which, I mean, at least the way people construct things in the U.S., that's kind of a left-wing thing to think. We're all commies. <laughs> so there might be some bias, but uh, if you look at the history of anthropology, certainly the studies that anthropologists have produced have been used sometimes as technologies of power and oppression. And beyond that is the fact that once we have written our work, no matter what our intentions are, what is done with it is kind of beyond our control. Well, on that slightly grim note, thank you all for being here. Um, I want to thank Julia Brown. Thank you. Ian Pollock. Thanks, Simon. And to thank Jodie Lee Trembath. Thank you. And I was your host, Simon Theobald. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of the program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Please, if you have anything to say or anything to contribute, uh, let us know. So until next time, keep talking strange.